Well, thank you all so much for joining us today here at the Cato Institute and those of you joining us online. I'm Alan Carrier. I am the Director of Sphere Education Initiatives here at the Cato Institute. We work with uh, educators across the country on how free speech and civil discourse can help overcome polarization. We're thrilled today to be joined by one of my very favorite people, Nadine Strassen, uh, author of the new book, Free Speech, What Everyone Needs to Know. Uh, for those of you who are not already familiar with Nadine's impressive accomplishments, among her wide variety of lists of things that she's done in her storied career is uh, to be the past national president of the American Civil Liberties Union. She currently serves as a professor emerita at the New York University Law School, as well as senior fellow at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, among many, many other things. Very excited to be here today for this conversation and look forward to hearing from you all. Uh, what we want to do with the conversation today is talk a little bit about free speech broadly, uh, what it is, how it's misunderstood, some of the unique and interesting challenges to it, but also talk about some contemporary issues both raised in the book and uh, unfortunately in society over the recent months. Uh, so, Nadine, to get us started, I, I would love to talk a little bit about something you touch on both toward the beginning and the end of the book, which is this idea of free speech as something more, uh, older, deeper, perhaps, than uh, merely the protections listed in the First Amendment. So it is that, and a lot of the book covers the First Amendment protections of free speech in particular. I, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about where does this idea come from? What does it mean to broadly support something like free speech? Well, thank you so much, Alan. Thanks to you and the Cato Institute for hosting me yet again for a book forum. I've been honored to have the opportunity to talk to your important audience about all of my books. Um, so freedom of speech is certainly protected by the First Amendment to some extent, mm -hmm. but it is independent of and in many ways more all-encompassing than First Amendment protections. Uh, to Let me put it this way. Strong legal protection of free speech under the First Amendment is necessary but not sufficient for us to truly exercise and enjoy meaningful free speech. Why is that? Because the First Amendment, for all of the broad scope that it has received in recent history, although for most of its history it was pretty much of a dead letter, uh, free speech only protects us against government violations of our speech rights. And therefore, if we are concerned about truly having a thriving free speech culture, we need to go beyond First Amendment protections. And here I know libertarians might well disagree with civil libertarians on this particular issue. Uh, but for example, I as a civil libertarian and free speech advocate would urge private universities to voluntarily protect free speech rights of students and faculty members to the same degree that public universities are required to do so under the First Amendment, even though there's no legal obligation for private sector universities to do that. Uh, another really important example is conjured up by that much contested, but I think important term, cancel culture. Everybody uses it somewhat differently, but the essence of the concern is this, that 
even though individuals and groups and companies and employers have rights, including free speech rights, to strongly denounce and criticize and advocate for punishment against and to implement punishment against individuals for expressing controversial viewpoints. Um, if it goes too far, I put that in quotes because I recognize that's a matter of subjective judgment, but an unduly retributive, harsh punishment and fear of unduly retributive, harsh punishment from private sector actors leads people to engage in undo self-censorship, and that's what we call cancel culture, when surveys show that people are afraid to express their viewpoints on sensitive, controversial topics, not because they're afraid the government will punish them, that would violate the First Amendment, but because they're afraid of retribution from the private sector. So that is another respect in which First Amendment protections are necessary but not sufficient to have flourishing free speech exercise. I think that's something that you and I have talked about previously is critically important, that notion of a, a culture of speech that the First Amendment protections live within. That is, they're effective to the extent that people want there to be speech, want there to be engagement, and times like we've seen recently really push hard against uh, a, a broader sense of speech and engagement. Uh, before we, we jump to the book where I want to go next, I just one additional question to build off of that. What, what do you see, so some of that being cancel culture, some of that being these other pieces, what's sort of the biggest threat facing that kind of culture of speech uh, in America today? The, you know, when you, answer, you end your question with the word today, Alan, which is really important, but I will tell you, in a very long career, we just uh, discussed the fact that when I had the opportunity to have an interview about my very first book here at Cato, Alan was in seventh grade. <laughs> um, but for, you know, going way back then and even earlier, my answer has always been the same. And it's not because I'm you know, just rotely repeating the same, but on, on reflection, I continue to be convinced that the single greatest threat to freedom of speech is lack of public knowledge, lack of public understanding. Understanding the fundamental principles of free speech, the history that gave rise to it, the experience of censorship, the experience of censorship even for positive causes, right, to counter hatred, to counter disinformation, to promote national security. These are very important goals. But once one understands not only that the history and current reality of implementing those sensorial restrictions is as bad for the uh, countervailing goals as it is for free speech, um, once one understands that robust free speech for all of its limitations is the least dangerous approach for advancing not only individual liberty but also uh, societally important goals, 
um, then support for free speech really increases. So I've always worn two hats throughout my double career as a law professor and as a civil liberties advocate. As a law professor, I obviously don't believe in indoctrination. I believe in information and stimulating my students' critical thought. As an advocate, I advocate a certain strong interpretation of First Amendment norms, but I've found that there is an overlap. The more information and understanding people have about free speech, the more supportive they become. I think that's fantastic. So let, let's turn to the book. So for those of you who do not have a copy, we have links on our website, but also available for purchase here at the Cato Institute. Free speech, what everyone needs to know, is in the Oxford University Press series, the What Everyone Needs to Know series. One of the things that I think is particularly beautiful about it is it's a sort of Q&A format style of engaging with the idea. Uh, posing questions, answering them in easily digestible chunks and in, in sections that are really easy to work with. For those of you teachers joining us both in person and online, I strongly recommend the text as a great resource for your classroom. It'll be very accessible to your students, but also for those of us who are not quite as many years experience in free speech as you have, it's still something where you learn from it throughout. So when I wanted to go through a few of the, uh, you have a, a section that covers the 12 most common, most challenging questions and arguments against free speech. Hit a handful of those, because I think it highlights a number of the important points you've brought up and can be really informative in thinking about this issue broadly. Uh, the first one I want to begin with is, is where you begin. Uh, isn't the First Amendment too rigid or too absolute in what it does? That is, ought it not have more exceptions given what we've seen? Uh, thank you so much for, for starting with that, that question, Alan, and for giving me the opportunity to say that consistent with my support for free speech, I believe, along with John Stuart Mill, that absolutely every proposition especially the ones that we have held most dear, is subject to question, is subject to contestation, is subject to debate. And so I especially welcome the questioning format because I pose those questions to myself every day. And I welcome audience questions. I welcome the opportunity to give my best answers to the toughest questions that I receive. But as I also say at the beginning of the book, and this is one of my mantras for my students as well, I would like people who engage with the book to do what I ask my students to do, which is not only give your best answer to every question, but give your best question in response to every answer. Uh, and I, I, so I started with what I consider to be the most challenging questions and, and the most common ones. And this is definitely the most common one. Uh, most people who are free speech detractors have a false assumption that freedom of speech, at least as it is now protected under United States Supreme Court jurisprudence, is rigidly absolute that those of us who defend free speech, we're often referred to as absolutists, uh, we're often told that we will acknowledge no exceptions whatsoever uh, to First Amendment free speech protection, and indeed that we don't even recognize that speech causes great harm or can cause great harm. 
all of those generalizations are completely incorrect. Uh, in fairness, I have to say, uh, the term censor is used in an equally unfair and inaccurate binary form. I have debated uh, everybody who has advocated uh, strong restrictions on speech that I have considered to be unjustified, and I must confess uh, that I have sometimes referred to them as advocating censorship. So one of the lessons I've learned is that that is unfair. They are no more absolutely defending censorship or opposing free speech than I am doing the opposite. I think all of us are on a continuum recognizing that some speech should be subject to restrictions, but we just disagree about which speech and even more importantly, under what circumstances. What should government, should government have the burden of, you know, should the speech be presumptively protected or presumptively subject to restriction? And what should the government, if it does have the burden of proof, uh, which uh, is the law now, um, what should the government have to show? And uh, so in a nutshell, and, the, and one of the beauties to me of, of writing this book, Alan, was how much I learned in terms of distilling a very, very complex body of free speech law that has developed for more than 100 years with all kinds of byways and exceptions and caveats. And uh, I was really able to distill it into quite simple but not oversimplified principles. And the more you look at those principles, the more you realize they make a great deal of common sense. Um, I concluded that First Amendment law now appropriately empowers government to restrict the speech that is the most dangerous, but it also bars the government from engaging in restrictions that engaging in restrictions that are the most dangerous, right? So the most dangerous speech can be restricted, but the most dangerous restrictions may not be imposed. And let me just flesh out each of those concepts a little bit. Speech that is the most dangerous is speech that has a tight and direct, immediate connection to specific serious harm. The term that is often used to describe that concept is the emergency principle. The speech directly poses an emergency by either immediately, merely by being spoken, causing great demonstrable harm, uh, or by imminently threatening such harm. And the Supreme Court has recognized a number of subcategories of speech that satisfy that emergency standard. Many of them will be familiar to you. Intentional incitement of imminent violent or lawless conduct that is likely to happen imminently. Targeted bullying or harassment a genuine threat which intends to instill an immediate reasonable fear on the part of the person to whom it is directed that they will be subject to attack. Now let me pull back to the counter principle that is the speech restriction that is the most dangerous and therefore uh, is prohibited censorship under the First Amendment. 
And that is when the reason for restricting the speech is not because it poses an emergency directly and immediately, but rather because of disagreement with or disapproval of its idea, of its message, of its viewpoint, of its content, or because it has an indirect, speculative connection to potential harm. In other words, both cases, short of that tight and direct connection to harm. This is um, this more loose standard of restriction is what we had through most of our history until the 1960s. It was often referred to as the bad tendency test that government may restrict speech anytime it has a tendency to perhaps potentially at some point in the future lead to some harm. And that's a standard that is used in many countries in the rest of the world. Uh, by the way, those of us who oppose that bad tendency test, including most importantly the United States Supreme Court, do so not because we deny that speech that short of the emergency standard can do harm. Of course, speech short of the emergency standard can do great harm. But the conclusion is that it's even more harmful, even more dangerous to give the government that added latitude, that added discretion, which is essentially a blank check to pick and choose ideas that are disfavored. You mentioned the Supreme Court, and I think one of the things that is fascinating about both the book and, and commonly misunderstood is just how, uh, you might say, lockstep the court is when torn apart by other disagreements when it comes to thinking about some of the pieces of the First Amendment and its application. Generally speaking, those decisions are broadly aligned or nearly unanimous. Uh, Fascinating as far as that goes, but you you mentioned something that I think is is worth talking about, uh, and that's this idea of speech being harmful, right? Uh, I wonder if you might build off of that point that you made there at the end that as it is not an acknowledgement that speech is harmless, but that the alternative of giving government the power to censor or limit or um, predetermine who or what ought might be able to say is actually more harmful than the potential speech. Even, and I think this is interesting, in some of the areas that are most obviously painful for people. So I, can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, uh, thank you so much, Alan, because 99% of the time when people make an argument that certain controversial kinds of speech should be censored, the argument starts and ends with assertions and sometimes evidence that the speech is harmful. Uh, so to take an example, my prior book was completely about hate speech. One of the, and the, the book is defending freedom of speech for hate speech, not because I think hate speech is not harmful, to the contrary. I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. I know that hateful speech can inflict enormous harm on uh, various individuals and members of minority groups, but the alternative of government censorship is, is even more dangerous. But one of the leading, I would say the leading books that expounds a different perspective uh, was written by a philosopher who teaches at NYU, uh, Jeremy Waldron, and the title of his book 
And the entire content of his book is the harm in hate speech. Well, yes, but logically, to conclude that speech is harmful cannot sufficiently justify restricting the speech unless you can make several additional showings, which First Amendment law does demand, fortunately. Uh, number one, that the harm can be materially reduced, substantially reduced through speech restrictions. Uh, number two, that there's no less speech restrictive alternative for reducing the harm than restrictions, for example, counter speech or education, uh, might be even more effective than restricting the speech. Uh, number three, you have to uh, balance the harms that come from empowering the government to restrict the speech because those harms will include the inevitable over-enforcement, right, uh, because laws are never precise and um, no two people can agree on what speech is hateful. So inevitably, the price you pay for empowering government to restrict the speech that you think is hateful is also empowering the government to restrict speech that you don't think is hateful, including even counter speech. So one has to go through this multi-pronged analysis. Um, one way that the United States Supreme Court describes this is uh, we lawyers call strict scrutiny, that government may restrict the speech if but only if it can show that the restriction is necessary and the least speech restrictive alternative to promote a countervailing goal of compelling importance. So if you could show that hate speech restrictions are the least speech restrictive alternative that they will effectively and substantially reduce actual hateful attitudes, then you can and should uh, allow the censorship. But that is a showing that simply has not been made throughout history around the world to this day. I, in my book on hate speech, I, I cite experts, human rights experts from many other countries where it's completely lawful as a matter of free speech law to restrict hate speech, but these human rights advocates oppose the hate speech restrictions because they say they're simply not effective. Uh, the hateful attitudes remain in place and may even be hardened as attention is increased as a result of the forbidden fruits phenomenon. Sympathy is increased and uh, that it would be much more effective to use counter speech educational strategies. So one of the other pieces that has come up both in your book and, and frequently in conversation is that uh, speech now is problematic in, in one of a couple of ways. One, that the broader support of something like free speech is actually now a, a partisan agenda in one way or the other. So it's sort of attached to conservative promotion of ideas as one example, or as a related idea that free speech is great for the powerful, for those who are already in authority in one capacity or the other, uh, but that is merely license for harming those who are powerless. Uh, I, you respond powerfully to that idea in the book, and I, I wonder if you might share a little bit with the audience here today why those ideas, both 
missed the mark. Yeah. So first of all, let me be completely clear about this. I believe that conservatives and powerful people should have robust free speech rights. So uh, to me, uh, free speech protection that redounded to those people, among others, would not uh, would not be problematic. But actually, freedom of speech uh, correctly enforced, as by and large the current Supreme Court does, benefits every single person and every single group, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, you are equally entitled both to voice your views, so long as you don't transgress that emergency principle, and equally entitled to listen, to choose to listen to other people's views. Um, however, as a matter of practical reality, freedom of speech is especially important to anybody who is relatively powerless, relatively uh, minoritized in terms of having dissenting perspectives or being in a minority group by, by way of identity, because we live in a democratic republic where appropriately government officials are responsive to the majority of their constituents or to powerful groups, interest groups in their constituency and predictably are going to wield their power in ways that are less sympathetic to the viewpoints and voices of those who lack access to resources uh, or lack access to political power. And so that just makes sense as a logical matter. Uh, if one looks through history and one looks at current events, one sees that that logical analysis actually is borne out in reality. So to use American history, for example, uh, throughout our history, it's been dissident movements, people and groups who are agitating to challenge the status quo, to reform the status quo, that have borne the brunt of censorship. So I say to my progressive friends who are champions of human rights and co who complain that, oh, free speech is just used to bolster the powerful of conservative, wealthy white men and so forth. Again, that would be no problem from my perspective, but it happens to be logically and historically inaccurate. Uh, throughout American history, the brunt of censorship predictably was borne by the abolitionists of slavery, by advocates of women's suffrage, by advocates of rights for labor unions, by uh, pacifists and conscientious objectors and uh, protesters against various war efforts, by members of the LGBTQ rights movement, by the civil rights movement, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all advocates for social change especially depend on robust free speech. I think it's a, it's a powerful truism that if you lack authority in a society, what you truly have is your voice. And empowering those individuals to use that voice, those speech rights, to advocate and push for those protection of rights, those expansion of rights, ends up being so critically important to that sort of success and change that you've seen yeah. subsequently. Alan and I have, I've, have had the privilege of sharing the podium many times for SPHERE programs with Jonathan Rauch, who's one of the um, heroic, lifelong champions of LGBTQ rights, including marriage equality. And every time I hear John, I, I am so moved by his 
powerful, eloquent, uh, heartfelt explanation of why for members of sexual orientation and gender identity minorities, freedom of speech is so critically important and censorship is so dangerous. And he talks about how heartbroken he is that too many of today's supporters of those movements lacking that historical understanding take free speech for granted and even attack it and that nothing could be more antithetical to their human rights cause. One uh, major feature of this book, and even more so of your previous book, uh, is thinking about hate speech and how we, how we respond to hateful ideas that are promulgated. One of the ideas that you talk about extensively across all of your writing is this idea that the appropriate response is counter speech, right? To push back, to, uh, to bring additional ideas and different perspectives to the table Talk a little bit about, about counter speech. Why is it so powerful as a tool? And then I suppose as part of that, uh, the, the concern that you mention in this book is the way in which it can sometimes feel like counter speech is being put on the burden of that on the individuals who are receiving hate speech. Mm. Right? So how do we think about counter speech broadly speaking mm. as a mechanism and why is it more complicated than merely saying those suffering abuse are the ones responsible for responding? Thank you very much. And first of all, counter speech is not my idea. I know you know that, Alan, but that goes back to the pioneering Supreme Court uh, initially dissenting opinions by Justices Brandeis and Holmes early in the 20th century that were finally adopted by majorities and, in fact, un unanimous, as you indicated, Ellen, uh, current Supreme Court decisions. Uh, they said that the remedy short of when speech does not satisfy the emergency standard, it may indeed pose other harms, but the remedy is not enforced silence. It's answering, it's explaining, it's arguing. And the reason why counter speech is, is more effective, and, and before I get to your specific question, is what we are targeting, after all, with respect to any problematic speech, whether it's um, hate speech, whether it's disinformation or misinformation, whether it's terrorist speech, we're not trying to, our goal is not to suppress the speech per se, our goal is to affect the underlying attitude, right? We don't want people to be hateful. We don't want people to accept and act upon disinformation, which may be harmful to them as individuals and to our society as a whole. We don't want people to adopt terrorist ideologies and, and wreak havoc and violence on, on us and our fellow citizens. And, and once you realize that your goal is changing the attitude, you then get back to this question. Is punishing the speech even an effective way to do that, let alone the most speech protective way to do it? And I think the answer to that has to be no. Uh, people are not going to be, in fact, uh, social uh, science disciplines show that if you uh, punish people, even through cancel culture by shaming and shunning, you're much more likely to harden their attitudes than to uh, get them to change their attitudes. But the detractors from counter speech, especially in 
the context of hate speech, make a, a number of false assertions about it, similar to the false assertion that being a speech protector means that you absolutely always defend free speech, no exceptions. And one of the other myths um, that uh, I, I so often hear from, from those who oppose counter speech and support restrictions is, well, it's unfair to impose the burden on people who are targeted by hate speech or belong to groups who are targeted by hate speech. Why should they bear the burden of counter speech? I have never heard either a Supreme Court justice or any other proponent of counter speech saying it is the responsibility of the people who are targeted or the groups who are targeted to engage in the counter speech. Not at all. Uh, to the contrary, it is the responsibility of all of us who believe in the countervailing values who oppose hatred, who oppose anti-Semitism, any other kind of hatred, Islamophobia we hear a lot about today as well, um, who, and, and to be more affirmative about it, those of us who support human dignity and equality uh, and equal freedom and rights for all human beings have a responsibility, I would argue, not a legally enforced responsibility, but a civic responsibility to constantly, proactively, affirmatively champion those positive values. Now, I will say, and Jonathan himself has written about this with respect to LGBTQ rights, that uh, members of groups that have traditionally been disparaged have recounted that it is a very empowering um, joyful experience to have the self-confidence and the rhetorical skills to answer back or to ignore and walk away. Whatever strategy uh, you choose, that that can be an affirmation, reaffirmation of your sense of dignity. And uh, certainly when Barack Obama was president, he gave a number of speeches on college campuses uh, where he was talking to black students and he said, you know, you shouldn't be shouting down Condoleezza Rice or various others that were being shouted down at the time. You know, it would be much better for you. You would feel more dignified and uh, be making more of a contribution to your own well-being as well as to our society as a whole if you chose to answer back rather than, than shouting down. But that shouldn't be a responsibility. That should be an opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, for those of you joining us online, I do want to encourage you, submit those questions through there, through the forms that are there. And for those of you here in person, we'll be going to questions here shortly. Uh, I want to turn a little bit from the specifics we talk about in the book to some of the contemporary situations and challenges around uh, free speech in the world today. The, as you, you well know, the hard part about being an advocate for free speech is that sometimes it's one group mad at you and the other times it's the other group and it changes so fast. It's, it's hard to keep your head on straight. Uh, but in the last month, we've seen sort of horrific conflict flare up in the Middle East and that's led to a whole variety of interesting challenges domestically as well when it comes to, to speech concerns, whether that's uh, law schools or law firms rescinding offers of participation in law school or job hirings afterwards, or people 
facing punishment uh, in the face of strongly expressed opinions in one direction or the other. I, I wonder if you might talk about that a little bit right now. So thinking about the multiplicity of ways in which this is manifesting as speech concerns, what are some of the guidelines that you hold to when thinking about how to respond to these challenging situations? There are multiple different situations, and the First Amendment analysis is always very fact-specific, so uh, please forgive me if I, I can't cover it all, and if there are some follow-up questions, I, I would welcome them. But interestingly enough, I have been invited by a number of publications to address various facets, uh, starting with very shortly after the October 7th terrorist attacks, Barry Weiss reached out to me to write something for the Free Press, which uh, was published quite promptly thereafter, defending freedom of speech even for anti-Semitic speech. A lot of people were very shocked at uh, virulent language that came from college students and faculty members uh, that were expressing what uh, views that a lot of Jews considered to be um, hateful, anti-Semitic speech. And so I had to explain why ultimately, uh, you know, I, I truly do believe this. One of my friends said to me, Nadine, isn't it hard for you as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor to, uh, to defend free speech for, for anti-Semites, and I should say as the wife of an Israeli, to defend free speech for anti-Zionists? And I honestly can say it's not hard at all. Because I am absolutely convinced, as I said to uh, one of your earlier great questions, Alan, that it is especially members of embattled minorities that especially depend on the power of free speech. And um, our speech is going to be attacked as hate speech or disinformation and subject to censorship. So with all of its flaws, I think it is the least bad tool available um, for those of us who are being targeted by hateful speech. But unfortunately, we have also seen too many instances including on campus, of speech that does satisfy the emergency standard, at least from the evidence that is publicly available. And I do recognize that you know, we have to let the factual records develop. But I mentioned that one subcategory of speech that satisfies the emergency standard is what the law calls a true threat. Uh, and the word true is thrown in there to make clear that we're not talking about the word threat the way we tend to use it more loosely in colloquial language. I've heard many students say, I feel threatened by the fact that a conservative speaker is going to be speaking on my campus. That's not a true threat. Uh, but when the speaker is targeting a particular individual or small group, identifiable group of individuals, and intends to instill a reasonable fear. Reasonable means objective. So you were not just talking about a thin-skinned person who's unusually fearful, but the speaker intends to instill a reasonable fear that the targeted audience is going to be subject to attack. That's a punishable true threat. Now, a really important point here is the speaker does not have to intend to carry out the, the violent act. It's sufficient that the speaker intends to instill a reasonable fear. 
Because if you reasonably fear that you're going to be subject to attack, that's already having a demonstrable negative impact on you, right? It interferes with your freedom of movement and your freedom of speech. And we've heard many accounts of Jewish students on campus uh, being subject to intimidation and to um, reasonable fears of, uh, of threatening, uh, resulting from threatening communications. Uh, one a dramatic example resulted in an arrest last week at Cornell. I'm sure many of you have heard about it. Uh, the U.S. attorney for that area in New York um, brought a criminal complaint against a student for virulently anti-Semitic threatening language that specifically identified a, a particular facility on campus, which was the cafeteria that served kosher food where Jewish students um, hung out. And so based on the facts that I've read, I, I agree with the FBI and local law enforcement um, that that was a punishable true threat. Sadly, we've also seen, and I, this doesn't go without saying, actual violent conduct is not protected. Uh, today I read about an assault on another campus, I believe in uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst. By the way, I've seen a, a video that uh, seemed to show a Jewish student at Harvard being subject to um, threatening um, conduct. There were demonstrators that were um, crowding in upon the student, no physical contact, but I think um, were intimidating. So that's really important because it's not clear that there has been sufficient protection against that kind of expressive conduct that crosses the line to uh, be punishable harassment or true threats or intimidation. And, and that's really important that there be discipline. Now, what about uh, constitutionally protected speech that becomes the basis for private sector employers or others to engage in what we've been calling cancellation tactics? That is not government punishment, but uh, punishment by those who wield power, whether it be an employer to refuse to retract a job offer, which has happened, employers making statements that they will not hire students who have engaged in certain protection, um, others, uh, various organizations that are engaging in so-called doxing, running trucks around campus that have uh, plastered huge blown up photos of students and their names uh, saying here are the major anti-Semites on this campus. All of that is protected conduct it, and, and including protected speech. With one caveat that I feel important as a law professor to mention, and I want to thank um, UCLA law professor Eugene Volokh for having done path-breaking research. There, are, there is no federal law that bars employment discrimination in the private sector on the basis of political beliefs, right? Employers, private sector employees under, employers under civil rights statutes may not discriminate on the basis of race, religion, gender, and so forth, but political beliefs, including expression about political uh, controversies, is not a protected category under federal 
anti-discrimination law, but it is under the anti-discrimination laws of certain states and certain localities. And Eugene has reminded employers that they better check the local law in New York, for example, before a law firm retracts a, an employment offer, a jo an actual job uh, from somebody because of a political belief they express, better double check that that's legally permitted under state law. But I think it's, a it's definitely a minority of states and localities that have those laws. So it's a, a question of, yes, it may be legally your right to do that as an employer or as a doxer, uh, but is it the right thing to do? And my view is that we should use the same standards in this context that we use in other contexts when we say that somebody who misgenders, quote unquote, or somebody who um, says something that's deemed to be insensitive on the basis of race or gender, which has been the basis for enormous cancellation campaigns, including people being shamed and shunned and ostracized and losing their jobs. You know, for those of us who say, well, that's too harshly disproportionate a retribution for speech that some segments of our community see as wrongheaded and deeply offensive, I would use the same standards for speech that others of us see as wrongheaded and deeply offensive. And so I would argue for a more nuanced approach rather than categorically saying we're not, a law firm is not going to hire a student who participated in any kind of um, expression that is viewed as pro-Hamas or not sufficiently anti-Hamas. Rather than that categorical exclusion, I would ask for, urge, uh, that the employer voluntarily um, consider a more nuanced approach that would examine with respect to each student, well, what exactly was your role? You know, were you just, to use the Harvard example, were you a member of one of 30 student organizations that signed on to this petition uh, that had the offensive language, but you didn't know that your organization was going to do that, let alone have the opportunity to review it and approve it. Uh, after you did learn what the statement was, did you perhaps uh, dissociate yourself from either the statement or from the organization? Um, have you rethought your views? And, and you know, to, so to use it as an educational opportunity uh, in the hope, quite frankly, of persuading some of these students to rethink their views. So I'd love to turn to questions now. So we're going to have a couple of people coming around the room with microphones. Uh, so while they're up and moving about, I'll take a very quick question from our online panel, and then we'll come over here. Uh, over here first, and then over here second. Uh, so briefly online, uh, someone asks about what are uh, free speech restrictions that are moving toward limiting what teachers may teach in the classroom. I know this is a complicated question, but a number of states have looked to reduce availability of books or texts or 
well, you know the conversation yeah. very well. What are some of the relevant First Amendment considerations in that? Uh, and then we'll jump there and there. And I apologize because you say quick questions. As the questions are quick as the <laughs> answers are so complicated, but appropriately so. Mm. And, and, and this question about uh, curriculum and library books in the K-12 situation, which is distinguishable from the campus situation, is very difficult because it involves attention between two very important principles that undergird our whole constitutional system but are definitely in tension with each other. One is the presumption that the majority rules, right? In a democratic republic, um, majorities acting through their duly elected representatives get to make basic public policy decisions, including what books should be uh, included in the curriculum, what uh, uh, ideas should be included in the curriculum. This is done at a very local level, so it's like the quint quintessential example of grassroots democracy in action. But, of course, our founders in their wisdom did not create a pure democracy. They said that some freedoms are so fundamental that no majority, no matter how strong, may take them away from any minority, no matter how despised or small that minority might be. And one of those freedoms is, is First Amendment rights. And the Supreme Court, in the one decision that it has issued, on this issue, the court was very deeply split, showing how complicated the issue is. But the principle that they agreed on essentially is the following, that what is determinative as to whether the school board or whatever the local official is making the decision about the curriculum or the library books, um, uh, the determining factor as to whether that does or does not violate the First Amendment is what is the reason for not including something in the curriculum or in the library. If the reason is a matter of you know, a viewpoint neutral, non-discriminatory reason, such as um, educational suitability, age appropriateness, relevance to a course we're teaching, there the local officials should be deferred to, that's what the majority of our community is electing them to do. But if the reason is solely because of disagreement with or disapproval of the ideas, here we get to that viewpoint neutrality concept, or discrimination against the author mm -hmm. because of race or politics, for that matter, um, then that violates the First Amendment. So, the examples that the Supreme Court gave that would be impermissible are quite extreme. They said, you know, if a school board decided that they would remove all library, or library board decided that it would remove all books that were written by uh, authors who were members of the Democratic Party, that would be unconstitutional, or uh, written by members of racial minorities, that would be unconstitutional. So there's quite a bit of latitude, and we have to look on a case-by-case -case basis. Absolutely. Let's come up here, Rob. Uh, I'm really loud. I'm really loud, and now I have a microphone. <laughs> if I just shout louder than you, aren't I exercising my First Amendment free speech rights? <laughs> so the um, it all depends. I'm sorry, that's going to be my answer to just about everything. <laughs> because if you were shouting over me briefly, 
That would, in fact, be an exercise, Rob, not only of your free speech rights, but the rights of the audience members to hear your perspective. If, however, you are shouting in a sustained manner that continues to make it impossible or very difficult for the audience to hear me, that violates not only my free speech rights, but the audience members' free speech rights. And, you know, sometimes the, the, the devil really is in the details. We've had a couple of incidents that have been very well publicized at law schools, uh, among other places, where uh, the shouting has prevented an invited speaker from being heard for about 20 minutes, let's say, out of an hour-long program. And we've had deans of law schools say, well, 20 minutes isn't a substantial disruption, so we're not going to penalize the students for, for doing that. Uh, I would say, you know, two minutes would not be a substantial disruption, but um, reasonable people can disagree. But you can, you can shout even more, Rob. <laughs> you haven't used up your two minutes. <laughs> we have bouncers, Rob. We'll have them take you up. Uh, let's come up here to the gentleman in the blazer. Uh, yes, first, thank you for the clarity of your exposition, and um, it's been informative, I think, for all of us. I have two gray zone questions for you, not to spend the entire day on d complicated questions, but the first is that uh, six years ago, the Supreme Court in Packingham nearly unanimously ruled that Facebook at that time, which was mi miniature compared to what it is today, was in effect the A-Town Square, and thus its private sector ability to constrain speech in the town square um, was colored or limited or restrained. Um, the, 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 the Packingham seems to have been lost in the shuffle. I've not heard a lot about this, at least in, in um, appellate litigation, and um, the pushback has been well, now you're forcing the town square owner, and they somewhere use the analogy of a, 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 a shopping mall mm -hmm. that, that was declared to be the town square, mm -hmm. and you're forcing the shopping mall owner to allow Nazis and others to put on demonstrations in the, in the private shopping mall. So could you sort of untangle this and tell us where it stands? So the second question, oh. equally gray zone, Two years ago, the U.S. government declared that uh, RT, Russia Today, was no longer uh, media. It was now a propaganda outlet. And the criteria, even though Deutsche Welle, BBC, France von Kattler, which are all government-owned, were press, this was not press. And the Americans working for that outlet, whatever it is, propaganda outlet or media outlet, um, were thus constrained by a decision by the government to declare somebody is press and somebody's not press. So how, how, who, who has a right to declare that the New York Times is not press, it's propaganda, or is press and needs to be treated? I, it's, I can't figure out who can make those decisions, but 
they obviously are being made, and and uh, if you could untangle that a little bit, well, thank you. Well, these are, these are two excellent questions, um, and the first one I can understand is very. This is a very confusing area. Um, you slightly misstated, or you, you did what you said was absolutely correct, but you left out one important part of the Supreme Court's analysis in Packingham, which may um, uh, be very helpful. Uh, and, and that is, in the Packingham case, the United States Supreme Court did have the very strong language that you talked about, in which, the, which I quote and other people quote all the time, in which the Supreme Court said something like this, there used to be a debate in this society about what are the most important platforms for political debate. Now there is no longer any debate about that. It is clearly the online media in general and social media in particular. So the court really did four squares say this is a really important platform, not only for individuals to communicate with each other, but in a democracy for us, we the people, to engage in civic discourse with those who are seeking to represent us or who have been duly elected to represent us. That said, the specific issue before the court was an issue not of Facebook's implementation of its own content moderation standards, uh, but rather a government law, in that case a new North Carolina law, that barred convicted sex offenders, even after they had served their terms, from having access to this important private sector platform. So there was what we lawyers call state action in the sense of government action, was being challenged there, the North Carolina state law that denied access to sex offenders to what the Supreme Court said is a really important platform. So in other words, this state law is really interfering with your freedom of speech. The different issue and really important and difficult issue that the court is facing now are state laws that constrain the content moderation decisions of the private sector platforms themselves. And we have two state laws that have been ruled on with completely different results by the lower courts that the Supreme Court will weigh in on. Um, basically, these laws came from Texas and Florida, and there were concerns that uh, conservative voices were being disproportionately um, subject to so-called content moderation, removal, or deplatforming, uh, or you know, down having being muted, uh, deamplified online. Uh, and there is a, you know, I, I have to say, the, th the scholars and, uh, that I respect the most who have been studying these issues are really, haven't reached a conclusion. It's sort of like, what is the lesser of all evils here? We recognize, on the one hand, consistent with that Packingham statement, if you don't have freedom of speech on these social media platforms for all practical purposes, you're not going to have meaningful freedom of speech at all. 
When Donald Trump was deplatformed from Twitter and, and Facebook, the ACLU issued a statement that raised great concerns about that, not denying that Twitter had a First Amendment free speech right to do that as a private sector platform, but pointing out the enormous adverse consequences, not so much for Donald Trump himself, but you know, because he has access, he's got the resources to uh, go create his own platform as he did or to go to Fox News or whatever. But what about the other, the, you know, the disempowered, the economically uh, disenfranchised that you raised earlier, Alan? They're the ones that are particularly not going to have an option. And really importantly, what about the rest of us who have an interest in hearing what, who was then the duly elected president of the United States, had to say? Uh, or today, when uh, he's a leading contender for, uh, for the, being reelected to the presidency. So these are very complicated issues. And what I have found surprising is that even libertarian friends of mine, as well as conservatives and um, and and liberals, have all advocated, or at least not rejected a proposal that some of these companies be treated as regulated public utilities or common carriers that would be required to carry certain content in a non-discriminatory way, the way the landline telephone companies are not allowed to discriminate against particular speakers or messages. That obviously raises concerns about private property and free speech rights and editorial rights of the platform. Uh, so very, very difficult issues. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for our full session. We've barely scratched the surface of all of the amazing issues that come to thinking about free speech, whether that's disinformation and misinformation conversations, media outlets, other impacts in schools and communities. Uh, my recommendation to you all, start here, pick up a copy of the book, read it. It'll give you a fantastic basis to engage in some of the ones we couldn't get to. Nadine, as always, thank you so much for joining us for the conversation today. It's been fantastic. Really enjoyed the book and the conversation. All please join me in thanking Nadine. Oh, th and thank all of you for your great questions. And